My name's Johnson. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> I'm glad you had a whole passel of jokes to tell because I'm not very good at jokes. I uh, told my wife coming over here, she asked me, she looked over and we were fighting a 50 or a 60 mile an hour breeze coming over South Pass today. And she looked over and said, well, honey, how long are you going to talk today? How long do they want you to stand up there and talk? I said, oh... Carl kind of suggested when he called, maybe take an hour, hour and a half, but you know in AA they don't make any laws and I thought maybe five minutes from the heart would get me off the hook. Nobody will... She said, oh no, no, it doesn't work that way. She's kind of God's little emissary here on earth where I'm concerned and that's Holy Grail. When she speaks, I listen. I walked in the door and I told Carl, Carl and I've been friends for quite a while, I said, Hey, Carl, how about five minutes from the heart? He says, no, it doesn't work that way. He proceeded to lay out a few more things. I got to looking around and I see I'm in no different position in here than I will be when I walk out back in that world. I got a noose hanging over my head just like I'll have when I walk out of here. And I kind of resent it. Carl went to work for the federal government. We're both worked around the oil industry or what's left of it in Wyoming. And I've had some dealings with them both in the oil business and out of it. And I know something about Carl that Carl doesn't think I know about Carl. They know how to threaten people without threatening them. Uh, he called me last Sunday and he made it known that the conference was going to pick up our hotel bill. Got me obligated. I walked in the front door and real nicey-nicey says, well, we've already taken care of your registration. I said, like hell you have. We sent that in way early. He kind of backed up a step and, and uh, then we started kidding. And it was all in good humor. In fact, I wish he was up here right now because that was kind of funny. My story really isn't. One of the guys from our group that uh, I spend quite a bit of time with asked me a minute ago and back. He said, John, you're just going to tell your story tonight? And I said, Mark, I tell you, that's all I got to tell. Uh, it's my story and it's, it's not pretty and it's not flowery. I found out the first AA meeting I ever walked in, it wasn't particularly bad and it wasn't particularly good, but it's the only one I got to tell. In order for me to say it was, it's good to be in Rock Springs tonight, I've got to relate to you that there's only one way it could possibly be good for me to be in Rock Sp Springs, Wyoming anytime, and that's through a lot of pain. I've taken a hell of a beating to get here and be able to say that honestly. The last time I was in Rock Springs, I put on a command performance in the restaurant we tried to get served in, and I hadn't even remembered that until we walked in there to eat dinner. Uh, I'm really unhappy to report that the service isn't any better. But my response to the same situation was a lot better, so there has been some improvement. We, I sat in the meeting last night, and one of the young fellows that hasn't been in our group too long laid out as sincerely and as honestly as he could, or so it seemed to me, many of the problems he'd had while drinking alcohol. How he'd been locked in jail, and how he'd done things he wouldn't normally do, how all the problems in his life had come as a result, a direct result of drinking booze or using drugs. And that's not the case in my life. I'm supposed to stand up here and start telling you some funny stories about my drinking and my drinking experiences, and so help me God, I can't think of any. I can think of a couple of instances I thought were real funny at the time. And I might relate them to you as an instance of how gross and how sick it was possible for me to get. 
My idea of good humor was to walk in a restaurant after the bars had closed, wait for a waitress to walk by with something that looked good to eat, wait till some wait till she set it down in front of somebody and go take it away from them. That was my idea of fun. The guys I run around with shop for cowboy boots the same way. We'd go look around for a pair that looked like they fit, inquire what size they were, and ask the gentleman to remove them. And the idea was that if he didn't, the fight was on, and if he did, we had the boots. And we could go out there just uproariously laughing, carrying on, really tickled with ourselves. I think it's by the grace of God I can stand here tonight and see how sick that really was. That's not where my problems began. My problems began back before I can remember, I guess. I'm the product of a Lebanese immigrant, my father, and a mother who always described herself as a Duke's mixture, Scotch, Welsh, Irish, and what have you. I could have took up my five minutes just telling you what a Lebanese person was a couple, three years ago, but thanks to Menachem Begin and Yasser Arafat, Bashir Jamal and all that oil crisis, everybody knows about Lebanon and what Lebanese means. And when I told you that my father tended toward violence, I could have took another five or ten minutes convincing you that I knew what violence was. But anybody that watches television knows that those people, some of them, are capable of a violent temper. And my father was. Looking back on it now, I can't honestly say I was abused as a kid. I think I was more abusive than I was abused. I'm the one that dealt out the pain. On the way to Rock Springs, Wyoming today, I took the scenic route. Before I was 12 years old, I'd managed to steal a D9 cat. I stole a 53 Buick. I shot a garage door of our neighbor full of holes with a bow and arrow. I cut school, I smoked cigarettes, and the unfortunate thing about all that was I always got caught. Every single time I always got caught. And that's what I was the sorriest about. I was told at the time that I had an attitude problem and I couldn't see it. My attitude was that if I hadn't got caught it would have been all right. That was not a result of drinking copious amounts of alcohol. I've heard of guys coming in here that got their drinking careers off the ground when they were tots. The only drinking I'd done up to that time was a little bit of social drinking. Uh, I was 10 years old, and I think around the time we were eight, my father used to have a little beer in the house. They'd have friends in on Saturday night. And when the party was over and the next morning, me and my brothers would go down in the basement by the laundry chute and get the cans and drain them. But I honestly believe that was social drinking because I drank it for the taste. I remember it tasted good. I don't remember any particular kick out of it. When they caught on to what we were doing, they started loading the cans with cigarette butts. And that was the end of that. I didn't feel any compulsion to drink it or strain the cigarettes out. It just was no big deal. I forgot about it. Shortly after that, my father developed stomach trouble. And uh, that was the end of the alcohol in the house. My next taste of alcohol came when I was 14, and I didn't particularly like it. Just prior to that taste of alcohol, I'd managed to steal another car, total it out, and six of us walked away without a scratch. The only thing that got my attention about that particular incident was that I had to wake my father up at 4 o'clock in the morning on the arm of a Colorado State Patrolman and tell him what I'd done. That was the only particular regret I had, was having to walk in and face a man with his temper. All through my elementary school and high school years, the only word that could classify me would be rebellion and rage, plain and simple.
I made it my business to agitate and aggravate. I made it my business to abuse people whenever I could. And really didn't suffer much remorse for it. When alcohol did come into my life as a factor at the age of 17, it allowed me to do some things that I wanted to do and not have to pay the price in pain, plain and simple. That's when I began to drink for effect. My drinking years are really not substantially different than probably a lot of you here. Maybe better, maybe worse. I was under the illusion when I came into the program that I was a moderately high bottom drunk. Uh, and being around the fellowship for some little while, I recognized myself as possibly a medium, medium bottom drunk. And thanks to an old war horse from Great Falls, Montana, I know now my true place. We were walking out of the meeting one night. Johnny I from Great Falls with, was with me and my sponsor. And he told a little of his story and I told a little of mine. And we had a pretty good meeting in there that night, quite a few of us. That old boy had been the route. I mean, he'd been the route. He's up in his upper 50s, and he'd been there. He walked out of there, and with a straight face, he said, John, I'm going to tell you one thing, son. He says, I'm glad I never got as bad as you did. And that's when the mystery cleared up. That's when I quit trying to evaluate where I fit into this thing and started trying to pay a little bit more attention to the recovery process. I had a typical, the typical rounds of, of jails, fist fights, uh, and what have you, my, my long suit was defiance and aggressiveness. I don't ever remember once getting what I wanted in the way of chasing women. I don't remember ever once going out and just having a good time when I was out mixing with people. The closest I could come to a good time with alcohol when I was, was when I was off all by myself, and I could just go into a reverie. And that's the good times I remember about alcohol, the mind trips being able to just sit down and get blotto with nobody around me and fantasize myself into anything I wanted to be. My first wife used to tell me that my whole world was in my head and that no one else was a party to it. And I, I could see that that was true and that's the way I wanted it. I was married at the age of 17 as a, as a senior in high school when those things weren't socially acceptable. Uh, and I just use that as an excuse to, to keep on my merry way. I don't want to go into the, too many more details of it because it bores me stiff and I can't imagine what it'd be doing to you. Uh, <laughs> the point I'm trying to make, and, and if it comes through fine and if it doesn't, that's all right too. The point I'm trying to make that as far as I'm concerned, my life didn't start until I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Since I've come into this fellowship, I've met a lot of people that accomplished something while they were drinking or before their drinking years that managed to put together some things that were somebody that had a place they could call their own something they could point to and say this is mine and I can honestly tell you that that's not the case with me as far as humorous drinking stories are concerned I know a guy I got a, a, a good friend of mine in the fellowship one of the best friends I've ever had uh, I've known him four or five years since I've been in Cody that character's still telling drinking stories I've never heard, and they're funnier than hell. He's been there. He's, he's a funny man. That's not my problem. The only fun I've ever had is since I came in here and put this thing to the test, this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The beginning of the end came for me when I ran out on my first wife and two children. 
I think that would have to be some kind of a turning point. And I ran out on them. After 11 years of wondering why she put up with me, I pulled the pin on her and left. I found the gal that understood like it writes about in the big book. Shortly after that, we married, and things did get better, believe it or not. They really did get better. I quit ending up in jails. I quit ending up in fist fights downtown. Things just kind of smoothed out. I'm a, rough, I'm a roughneck by trade in the oil field, which isn't much. That's a common labor job, and that's what I was doing at the time. The qualifications for that kind of thing don't, don't demand any kind of manual dexterity past being able to run a canal wrench or a shovel and uh, a sledgehammer. No command of the English language is necessary, and basically we communicate in four-letter words. The bulk of my effort tonight won't be to entertain you. It'll be to keep, keep the language suitable for an open meeting. I found out it was open and about went the other way. That second marriage was going along smoothly until our second wedding anniversary, or fairly smoothly. That could be my rose-colored thinker working bad again. I began to notice I was getting abusive with my mouth. Now, the one thing that that my wife never did in those two final years of my drinking for some reason and I'll never know why she never hassled me about it and that was the fundamental change I wasn't drinking out on the street anymore it wasn't by choice I always took the path of least resistance my first wife was on me from the minute I opened my first beer till I ran out the door screaming at her that's the only way I could get any peace so that's the way I went my present wife didn't do that made me pos made it possible for me to just stay home and stay out of trouble the trouble I caused was with my mouth and I suspect that the damage I did with my mouth just during those two years is worse than I can know now I've had a vicious mouth my whole life it's been a stumbling block for me from day one I was proud of it I was proud of it for a lot of years that I could cut people to pieces by what I said I didn't have to lay a hand on them and at the time I was at, at my worst, I was six foot two and weighed 250 pounds. I looked mean. It was just, it was, a, it was an act, it was a shell, it was a mirage, and I knew that, but it worked. People could usually take a look at me and I could cow them just by looking at them. Kind of like old Rod cows me now. When he talks, I listen. I caught myself cutting her up a little bit. And I realized that Something wasn't right. On the eve of our second wedding anniversary, I celebrated it by doing something just wonderfully charitable. It was super. I, I got totally outside of myself and I went shopping for 10 minutes to buy her some presents. That was a magnificent effort on my part, I thought. I, uh, I hated shopping. I, I shouldn't have to shop, but I did it. And I'd thought about it. I thought I was a thinker, boy. I was a drinking thinker and a drinking drinker and a stinking drinker. You name it, boy, I did it. I could really get that baby humming when I had a few. It was 10 o'clock in the morning, and I was nipping a little old charter and drinking some Coors beer. And, and I was thinking about this shopping trip and how it was going to take all day, and it was going to be wonderful. Well, the shopping trip lasted 10 minutes. I ended up buying her a tray that tarnishes so bad it pisses me off every time I look at it. We still got it. 
I bought her a stinking tray and a couple other trinkets. I brought it home and thought how wonderful I'd been. I guess I'll just drink and wait till she gets home from work. She was holding down a good job and I wasn't. As I recall it, I consumed a full half-gallon old charter and a case of Coors, which is no big deal. I had a good capacity. The other thing I had was an ability to talk straight, walk straight, and just get meaner. And I don't know why that is. This is not something I was aware of. This is something that I've been told about. That if I said I had a couple, the only way she could tell if I was lying was when the belligerent started. She came through the door and I got on her about those presents. I wanted her to notice that I had I'd gone shopping. And I can't remember this in any great detail, but over the years, with her good Alan on mind, it's all been put in there. I know what happened now. <laughs> she says I asked her five times to thank me for those presents, and she assures me that she did each and every time. <laughs> she assert, assures me that in, in utter gratitude, she put a, a beautiful meal on the table that I complained and bellyached about because she hadn't thanked me for those GD presents. I ended up selling my, celebrating my second wedding anniversary with my new wonderful wife shoved into the corner by our kitchen stove getting ready to lower the boom on her. That was new low for me. I'd hit on everybody and everything I'd ever come up against deliberately. I thought I'd killed what conscience I had left because it didn't bother me. But I pushed her into the corner, inside just begging, just say something so I can hit you. Why she didn't, I'll never know. There was a look in her face of sickness and revulsion and fear. Like I'd never seen before. hit me and it's burned in my head just like it's yesterday a thought hit me just a thought it was clear and it was cold and it was sober and the thought was who are you going to blame this time and that's exactly it wasn't who am I going to blame What shall, it was who are you going to blame this time And I backed up and I realized that the same old thing was coming around. I was headed right back into the same sewer I thought I'd got out of. The next thought was maybe it is me. Maybe it's me. And that's the first time in my life I was ever really willing to honestly consider that my problems might have something to do with me. That's about the only clear thinking I did that night. The rest was reflex. The rest was fear and panic. I was aware that I'd blown about the only good thing that had ever come into my life, and that was my wife. She didn't threaten me. She didn't tell me what was going on. It was in her face. It was over. What little marriage we'd had to that point was done. I was living in Gillette, Wyoming at the time, and I had seen, for some reason, 
this little classified ad. If you want to drink, that's your business. If you want to quit, that's ours. Alcoholics Anonymous, and there was a phone number. I had some little acquaintance with the program. My father had been in it for a couple of years at that time. And while he never ever once preached or told me anything about it, never even once suggested that I might have a problem, I knew he was in the program. And I knew not by what he'd said, but by what I could see that violent man becoming, that something was different. Something was way different. And I don't know what made me do it. I went to the paper, I picked it up, and I called that number. And I got a hold of a fellow named Sandy. He didn't want to come and see me. He asked me how much I drank, and I told him about as honest as I could, and that was a new, that was a first. Usually it was a couple or a few. I told him what I'd had to drink, as near as I could recall it. He didn't want to come. We talked for a few more minutes, and he decided he would come. He and another fellow came. His name was Russ, and I don't even know why I remember that, because that's about all I remember. I remember this Sandy character telling me he'd been sober a little over three years, and I thought, you lying SOB, and if you have, what have you, what have you got to say to me? But that other guy got my attention. He said, it, he, said, he said he'd been sober 90 days, is the way he put it. And I thought, you know, maybe if I could just get straightened out for 90 days, maybe I could figure out what's going on. I'd tried. I'd tried many times to moderate my drinking, to control it by switching drinks. It's just textbook stuff. It's all in here. You can read about it anytime you want to. And I'd failed, and I knew I failed. He suggested, and that's all it was. I remember this part of it. He said, you know, as much as you've had to drink, there's a good chance you won't feel this way in the morning. He'd evidently had some knowledge of whiskey dripping sincerity in the past from somewhere. I don't know how you can feature that, but evidently he did. He said, if you're still interested in Alcoholics Anonymous in the morning, why don't you give me a call? He gave me a phone number. And I did it. We had coffee and we talked a little. He told me it would be helping him a good deal if I would allow him to pick me up Monday night and take me to an AA meeting. I thought anything to help a stranger be my good pleasure to help you out, friend. And so I agreed. I, I tried to beg off, but he, he insisted that it would be doing him a good favor if I'd let him come and, and escort me to my first day, Amy. He showed up right on time, and we went. We walked in there, and I don't remember too much about it. Uh, I've heard a lot of people say they walked into their first meeting and were real surprised that the people they saw there didn't seem to be alcoholics but that's not what I saw I saw just exactly what I expected to see there was about five or six guys there and the ones that impressed me the worst were the ones with the reddest faces the ugliest looks the guys that looked like alcoholics whatever that is I sat down and they opened the meeting, and I don't remember much about it, except I did feel, I felt an acceptance there that I'd never felt anywhere else. The stories gave me some relief. I heard that first step and knew I'd taken it, or at least part of it. I knew that my life was out of control, badly, and that there didn't seem to be anything I could do to get it under control. I was losing my grip. I was losing it fast. I was getting to a point where I couldn't even hang on to a low-rent, roughnecking job. 
And I'm not insulting that. That's about all the background I've got that amounts to anything. And I've been one, so I can talk about it. It's a low-rent job. It requires nothing in the way of intelligence. All it re requires, and it's a gift, I, I have my health, it requires a good strong back. And when I started, it required a line. So help me, Hannah, there's a class of gentlemen working on rigs now, and it's good to see, but when I started in 1962, it was mostly people between stretches, either in Canyon City or Rollins or Le Lexington, Nebraska, is the kind of guys that were working on those rigs. And if you couldn't put up with it and stand up to it, then you were in trouble. And they were some bad news characters. The kind of people that beat their wives up for fun. And I mean that literally. Come to work and brag about it. I don't know where those guys have gone. I'm glad they're gone. And I was glad they were gone before I hit AA. I got some relief from that meeting, but I evidently wasn't listening. I went to the next meeting and made a real, a real gesture. I asked this sandy cat, what do I got to do to join up? I figured there was going to be some money change hands and paper to sign and he was going to lay a deal on me and I was going to be on the road. He said, here, why don't you read this? And he handed me that paper with the portion of the fifth chapter. And I did. And I was so concerned about my image while I was reading it and getting the words just right that I didn't pay any attention to what it said. I left that meeting feeling a little better. I hadn't had anything to drink for that week. Uh, felt good. And that was the end of it. I let my employment get in the way. I let some other things get in my way. I thought if my life's going to get so much better just by not drinking, I won't drink. I'll make that sacrifice. If it'll make my wife happy, I'll leave the alcohol alone. And I'll go to those meetings. And I'll be an AA member. But for some reason, I didn't get back. And for some reason, the book that my brother went out of his way to send me, he's been in the, I've got a younger brother also in the fellowship, never got picked up. I made it for four months without drinking, which was, it was a good thing. I, I got to feeling good physically for the first time in so long I understood what that meant. I'd lived so long mad and hurting and physically sick on that merry-go-round that when somebody told me, you'll feel better, I didn't have anything to reference that to. I didn't know what feeling good was anymore. I honestly didn't. I lost the capacity to know what feeling good was. I didn't know I was mad all the time and that I had a big chip on my shoulder and that my life was all hatred and resentment until I had one day where it didn't hit me quite as bad. And that was later on. I proved to myself something that possibly could have been averted if I could have put first things first or would have put first things first and I can't analyze it and thank God I'm not really asked to analyze anything in Alcoholics Anonymous that I'm aware of. I ended up out in Michigan training for a new line of work, something that would mean a substantial increase in income, a much easier way of life. It was still oil field related, but it would have been a better deal. I was training with a worldwide company, 
had a pocket full of credit cards, I had a company card. I had everything I'd ever wanted and thought I deserved handed to me. And I found out I couldn't handle it and I found it out the hard way. I made it through the training and I planned my reward. And I thought about my reward. They didn't have my favorite kind of reward in Michigan, which was Coors Beer. They had the old charter to go with it, but they didn't have that, so I settled for Pabst Blue Ribbon. And I thought about it. It didn't just happen. Even at that point, four months of no meetings and an ego trip that wouldn't quit, I still had time to change my mind if I wanted to. I went, so I was staying at the Holiday Inn in Gaylord, Michigan, and I got the phone book out, and there they were, just like those people told me, right in the yellow pages, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I looked at it, and I had my big book with me, and I don't even know why I'd packed that thing, but it was with me. And I thought, them people don't want nothing to do with me. And I went to the bar, and I'm glad I did. That's when I saw myself as John the alcoholic returning to his na native habitat. See, the word alcoholic didn't have any meaning to me then. And that's when I began to realize that the drinking was a symptom and that the first drink was too much as far as the drinking went. I picked the first one up and from then on, in my case, I didn't get away with it. I've heard lots of guys come in that got away with it for a while. I didn't. It was like watching two men. Once that first one was started, it was I was just like watching myself just... And then I went for the whiskey. I'd had a friend that I spent several nights in in various jails with that would tell me when we both got out, John, if you'd just leave that hard stuff alone, you'd be all right. And you know, it never occurred to me to ask that son of a gun. If the beer was all right, what in the hell was he doing in jail with me? But he was there right with me telling me that if... If I could just leave the whiskey alone, everything would work out. I told him something that, that happened to be the truth. I told him I couldn't leave the whiskey alone. Once I started, I couldn't leave it alone. And I think maybe one of the keys to this deal was staring me in the face and I couldn't see it. That drunk, or series of drunks, lasted, to the best of my memory, four days or a week. I finished up my training. I... I headed back into their, the company's eastern headquarters office, which was in Traverse City, Michigan, sicker than I'd been in a good long while. I had four months of chemical sobriety behind me, and my old body had done something for me. Uh, it healed up. And I had a monumental sick hangover going for me that, that felt just like what it was. It felt like a dose of hell. I got in to have lunch with with the people I was working for and under and I was hurting and I could taste that old 24-hour whiskey breath it had a taste to it I could taste it I didn't fully realize how bad and far that smelled out in front of you until I was sober for a while but I could taste it and I could see see him giving me plenty of room I tried to gag down some lunch and couldn't and I degraded myself with the disgorge of some of my bodily fluids in an inappropriate place right in front of some people that, that I shouldn't have been doing that in front of at noon. And something just barely hit me, and I don't know why, because I can't, 
I can't describe how tender that thread was that told me that I didn't have to be like that anymore. I think I was real close to throwing a chance at this deal right down the sewer. The knowledge of Alcoholics Anonymous just wasn't there. It was just a, there was just a little kind of a whisper that I, it didn't have to be like this anymore. And I kind of chewed that around that night in the motel I was staying in in Traverse City, and I didn't drink. I remember him saying, just don't drink today. I was to get on the plane and head back for Casper the next day. I was offered some drinks on that airplane, and I thought, well, I'll drink today and start tomorrow. Get me off this head I got. I... And the second piece of sanity I'd had in a couple of days hit me. I said, no, don't drink now. Just start now. So I declined just the first drink. That's all I could bear to think about was just passing up the first one. Complimentary drinks and me have a way of getting to be good friends. There never was enough of them when I was drinking. Now I'm surrounded by the damn things. That's not justice either. But I got off the plane and, and I came home and I became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. They didn't know it, but I did. I went down to the Monday night meeting. I was living in Riverton, Wyoming at that time. Determined to give it a try. I wasn't sure that I was an alcoholic, but I knew that nothing else, and that there was no place else to go, plain and simple. In the same week, I threw a fit of temper tantrum and quit my job. I had an opportunity to tell the manager of the company what, what I thought of him. He asked me to. Now, in the oil field, they tell you if you get run off and you don't want to know why, don't ask because you're likely to find out. That old boy made the mistake of asking me what I thought of him and I told him in the best way I knew how, real verbally and personally, uh, taking cuts at his birth and his ancestry and uh, <laughs> numerous references to his lack of expertise in what he was doing and what I managed to do was burn one of the last bridges behind me that that I burnt as a practicing alcoholic. If I was left without a job, I was left with a program I didn't understand and didn't really want. I didn't want to be an Alcoholics Anonymous and I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I walked back into that meeting and I saw the same guys I saw over in Gillette. They had different names and their faces were a little different, but they were the same guys. There was a couple of them sitting there all smug with their bright eyes and their beet red faces and their war stories to tell. And there was a gal sitting there and she was new. And there was a couple other guys. There was one about my age. But something struck me a little different at that meeting. And I don't know that it was anything they said. It was just a... It was just the look in those eyes. I heard the stories and I knew they'd been where I'd been and I knew I wasn't alone anymore and that I wasn't as unique as I thought I was all them years I was out performing. But it was those eyes. There was a look in them eyes. It was bright, shiny. It said, I can cut it. And more than that, it said, come on in, this is for you too. I felt that. I hung a lie on him. 
I wasn't capable of telling the truth. I heard for the first time in my life, I heard the words rigorous honesty at that meeting. Heard them. Not just sitting there when they were read. I heard them. I heard them say, a program that demands rigorous honesty. Well, I had a little background in high school math, and, and when I started college, I was a mathematics major. So the word rigorous hit me like a ton of bricks. I know what rigorous means. We had a geometry teacher in 10th grade that started me on rigorous. That means if this is square, you can prove it's square. And if you can prove it, that is a rigorous definition and it's bulletproof. It stands up under all times and conditions, period. It's as solid as this tabletop. Rigorous, strict, rigid, you name it. You can look it up in a dictionary. A lot of the guys I sponsor, I make them look that up in the dictionary so that we get, get our definition straight on what these words mean. The word rigorous is no... No mystery. It, it means something, and it has a definite meaning. Uh, I read an, an article in the Grapevine several years ago that said rigid honesty, and, and that's almost right. But I heard that. Now, that didn't make me rigorously honest, hearing it. As a matter of fact, I, I hung out one of the biggest lies I've ever told in the fellowship, and it was premeditated, and it was deliberate. And I hung her right out there in the meeting. I told these wonderful people how I had toughed it through in Michigan, never touched a drop, and how me and my big book, side by side, had weathered the storm. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. And old Ken Sennert was sitting there, and I'm not breaking his anonymity because he's passed on. He was sitting there, and he's one of the kind of guys I love best in AA. He had 12 years sobriety at the time, but he was still showing up. He looked me right in the eye, and I don't even know why I remember it, but I remember this word for word, and he said, I think you're to be commended for what you've managed to accomplish. And he wasn't smart-alecky, and he wasn't belligerent, and he wasn't mean. He just said it. And I thought, by God, he's, they bought it. Now, having heard similar things during my tenure in Alcoholics Anonymous, I know for a fact he knew I was lying. He knew I was lying that the, every word coming out of my mouth was a lie. But God love him, he knew something else. He knew something that I wonder if some of us aren't losing touch with. He knew I couldn't be anything but a liar. That was my native language. I'd lied so long and so often I couldn't do anything else. Where the term rigorous honesty had meaning for me, all I could do with that was to use it to begin to discover my own dishonesty. It had never occurred to me to be anything but dishonest. I could get my way while I was dishonest. And then that turned like a steel trap on me and, and it began to be where I'd lie when it would have been easier to tell the truth and I just couldn't tell the truth. And he understood that. Ralph J., my first sponsor, he evidently, I don't know that he understood it. He's not very understanding, but he didn't say anything. And I came back. The second meeting, coincidentally, was on honesty. And there was five or six of us making meetings regular. It was a small group. That's, that's been my trek through AA. It hasn't been in big meetings. This is these kinds of things at these Wyoming State Conferences are the biggest AA meetings I've, I've been in. Uh, which is fine. But I got a lot of personalized attention, I think, that maybe I wouldn't have got. I don't know. 
The stories I like the best and get the biggest kick out of are when these guys stand up and start railing about how their sponsor set them down and crammed the AA program right down their throat. You SOB, this is the way it is, and this is the way it's going to be, and you do it or get out. Boy, I love to hear that, but that ain't the way it happened to me. Didn't happen that way. Says no human power could have relieved my alcoholism. And I firmly believe that, that the level of my rebellion, belligerence, and aggressiveness was to the point where if someone would have tried that on me, I'd have shoved what little was left right down their throat and walked out and died. I was a sick man. That used to gall me. I used to think, boy, that's a cop-out. Alcoholism is a disease. Bull. I couldn't accept that. I can accept that today, and maybe I'll hit on that later, and maybe I won't. I was a sick man. And thank God there were some people there that could help me get well. There was an old boy running around 2,000 years ago claimed he could help people get well. And he's got a bunch of people following him around today, but and maybe they can help people get well. But I was to a point where if somebody wanted to come up and ask me if I was saved, I wouldn't have known what he meant. And I was to a point if somebody would have walked up and asked me, will you be baptized for the remission of your sins, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and for life eternal, I'd have hit him in the mouth. I didn't need doctrine. I needed the doctor. A doctor. I couldn't handle a concept off a printed page. Too far gone. Now that doesn't make those people wrong and me right. I happen today to believe they're right in a lot of cases. I've done something else the big book suggests somewhere on page 88. I've tried to see where those people might be right. There's also a story floating out around about that time about the Good Samaritan. And I know you've all heard it. They asked this Jewish itinerant teacher, they said, who, he said that no greater love had man to lay down his life and for a friend, but he also said something that interest, interested me when they asked him to sum up what it was he was trying to say, and he made the remark that you should love God and love your neighbor. Then one of the lawyers or teachers at the time asked him, well, who's my neighbor? And he related, him, he related back the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, Samaritans in that time were what the PLO is today. They were people without a homeland. But the name Samaritan also was an adjective. It wasn't just a noun. It wasn't like American or Palestinian. It was an adjective. And the closest thing we have to it now is kike or nigger or walk or sheeny. That's the kind of a label it was. And this is who the, who the carpenter pointed to and said, he told a tale of a man who'd been sick, beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And he told about how a priest had walked by on one side of the street. How a Pharisee had walked by on the other. And he told how the only one that would stop and give the time of day was the Samaritan. The Samaritan picked the old boy up, took him to a doctor, put him up in an inn, and he paid the bill. Paid the bill for the guy. And he says, this is who your neighbor is. I'm not a very good preacher, and I don't know if I made that clear. 
But it was clear to me when I read it. That's what I found when I got in Alcoholics Anonymous. No fancy labels. Just a group of people banded together with a way for a sick man to get well. I recovered far enough with, with meetings, with the talk in the meetings, and with, with the talk out of the meetings, to begin to comprehend a little bit about what this thing was saying. And I went immediately to Pink 7, I think is the way they describe it. I began to get spiritual and I began to get good. I began to have all the answers, by golly. I could talk the talk. I could tell you what was in this book. I'm a reader. I like to read. I've, uh, that's no sweat for me to sit down and read some of this stuff. I enjoy it. And I have, thank God, left uh, some kind of a capability to retain what I read, at least for a few minutes. So I could read something in the book, trot it down in the meeting, lay it out on the table, and be a hero. The problem was that I hadn't come to grips with what alcoholism is while I'm sober. I'd heard him say that this is a disease, and I couldn't buy that. I still had it in my head that this was some kind of a moral problem. That it was an issue of morals, and that uh, while I could certainly admit that willpower wouldn't take care of it, I, I was confused on what it is. I'm convinced that in my case that was pride. See, if it's a moral issue, I got a chance somewhere in the back of my head to fight it by myself. It's my choice whether I want to take the medicine or not. If it's a disease, it's out of my control. If I can accept the fact that this is a disease, it's out of my control. You don't argue with the disease. You don't intellectualize a disease. Part of my insanity was I couldn't accept it. I couldn't accept the authority of other people telling me that this was a disease. Mental, moral, and spiritual disease. And I didn't work the steps. I talked the steps. And I walked them if it was convenient. And that's, that's as close to rigorous honesty as I can come. I told a good story in the meeting. Or at least it seemed like I did. I got a lot of yeah, yeah, yeahs. And people would come up and say, boy, yeah, that's great. And all this crap. I wasn't really doing much with them. Inventory meetings, man, I'd sit down and I could tell you about all these wonderful in inventories I'd taken and I never picked up a pencil. The interesting thing about it was my sponsor was telling my story. He'd tell, he'd be, he was honest, he said he'd never picked up a pencil. So he was telling my truth, but he was happy, serene, and free and I was getting a little bit miserable. I got to a point a year and a half into the program where these anxious, nervous feelings were consuming me. I'd made the mistake of getting getting on beyond spirituality and becoming spiritual, and that's where you're really elevated. You're up there, boy, when you're spiritual. Uh, I had the answers. I, I frankly was a light for the blind, and, and I could carry a message. And my idea of a message was to memorize some of this and then try to shove it down somebody's throat. That ought to sound familiar. There's lots of organizations doing that. I'm glad that this isn't one of them to any large degree. At least the guys that stick are, are not doing that. The ones I know and think the most of, the ones that have what I want. I made the mistake of praying a prayer. I had got to a point where I could pray. I come in with no higher power, but that evolved itself. And two years into the fellowship, I was able to pray to an abstract God. Crudely and primitively, and that's about what they are now. My prayers are not things of poetry and beauty. 
They did a very stupid thing for a man that was trying to avoid responsibility where the program was concerned. I said, God, I've seen and read where you've taken your righteous men in the past and hammered them into shape. That your way is a pain of trial and tribulation. And without saying it, but believing it, I saw myself as worthy to undergo the things that a truly righteous man ought to have to undergo. Man, you want to see a classic case of storm clouds rolling in around your head and things turning black, stone cold, sober. Just say something like, just even think it at him. And I believe he will oblige you with, with his tempering process. I was utterly confused. For the first time in my life sober, I was confused. I mean, totally lost. I didn't know if I was coming or going. I didn't know what was happening. And it dawned on me I'd ask for it. So I went in and for the first time I got down. My progress were praying and humbling myself before my higher powers come very slow. I got down and I said, I need some relief. And I got it. I didn't get put back to my rightful place on pink seven as a light for the blind and the leader of the faithful. But I got put back into an AA meeting where we were talking about inventory. I decided to try some rigorous honesty. And I admitted I, didn't t I had never taken one. And I was beginning to see the need to do it. Could somebody help me? Well, yeah, we can help you. Uh, of course, my, my sponsor, he didn't make any bones about it. He'd never taken a written one. And I'm not condemning him. I happen to think, and I mean this sincerely, and, and it's unfortunate this is being taped because a good AA member isn't supposed to have anything like this recorded. The man's got good sobriety. He's as good an AA member as anyone I know. He lives it. But he had never taken one, and he was honest about it. He says, I can't really help you. I've never done it. It seemed like everybody I approached couldn't put the mechanics of it together for me. So I started the rounds of the Hazelton four-step guide. Huh? Beautiful thing. I could spend hours intellect studying it. Never wrote anything down, but I could look at it and put off the actual lifting of the pencil. I'd come across the Al-Anon four-step. In fact, I won one of those down at Cheyenne at one of the conferences. I won one. I thought, well, I wonder if somebody's trying to... I had still hadn't taken the inventory. Wonder if, yeah, I'll take this home. I'll take it home and I'll read it and I'll do it. I've never... Ne I can't say never, but I have hardly ever taken an inventory voluntarily. The time came again through pain when there was nothing else to do. I was back to a point. The black clouds were hanging around my head. Things were just going to hell fast. I was thinking about suicide. And I know what that's like sober. That's another thing you're not supposed to admit that you, that you can get down so bad that you, that you could consider that as a solution. But I have. I've had lots of dark days, stone cold sober. Days that weren't sweetness and, sweetness and light. And days I wish it never been. But it's in a, it was in a situation just like that that finally provoked me to try to take an inventory just because I couldn't think anything else to do. I was far enough along spiritually. I knew suicide was no solution. 
It might have been something to do, but it was no solution to anything any more than drinking's a solution. And I know that. And I know that knowing it's not enough to keep me out of it. I considered suicide when I was drinking many times. Looked like a solution of some kind. My problem then was I could never figure out a way to stick around and enjoy him being sorry. I couldn't figure out a, a way to do it where I might where I might be able to not hurt. But considering that sober is a little different, it's, it, for me, thank God, wasn't a solution. And the only thing I could think of to do was to try to take an inventory. I couldn't see how it would work. I was sure it wouldn't work, that things looked so bleak and so bad that this, this couldn't possibly help, but I just had to try something. I did something that amazes me to this day. I picked up the big book. Now I'm going to pick it up now if you don't mind. I've, I know I've taken up more than my five minutes. But this, is, this is my story. And we had a speaker in, in Cody last year that, that, that's an inventory pounder. And I heard him speak when I first came in the, the fellowship seven plus years ago. And I'm not going to pound inventory, but I'm going to do something that, that no one else did for me. And it's, in, it's, in, it's my story. This is important to me. On page 63, the text begins on inventories. Now, over here on 65 was another stumbling block for me, and it's this format. And you all know it as well. I don't have to show it. It's, it's this, I'm resentful at the cause affects mine. Now, I'd gotten this little sewer before by setting up the columns and figuring out how big a paper I ought to write on and, and how much room I'm going to need for all this stuff. And, and I get so bound up in, in form that nothing ever got done. So I did something, and I think I've probably heard it a million times, but I'm going to put it into action. I just went to the text, and there's a clear-cut set of instructions right here in this book as far as what to do. So I throw the format out, and I just went to the text, and I got seven deals here, and I, this is, I don't know, I don't number my big books. I, I got one that if I want to be real egotistical, I can bring in because it's all dog-eared and it's a second edition and it's beautiful. Pages are all filthy and everybody sitting out there could see, boy, that guy really, he really studies that book. <laughs> this is a fairly new one and I decided to buy it, number one, because I give, a, I give away tons of them and the only way I can keep my antique is to keep enough new ones on hand to give away. And secondly, because they've upgraded the stories in this thing, and I think it's important for me to know what these new stories are. I love the story section. Uh, and there's some new stories in this edition, and I like some of them. Uh, some of them saved my ass a couple times. Here on page 63, they start the text. And over here on 64, the, the first specific thing, and there's seven specific things. Number one, we listed people, institutions, or principles with whom we were angry. Specific instruction. And that's what I'm the best at, man. I'm a champion backbiter. I know how to put down resentment. And that's what it says. You can list it down. It says, on our grudge list. Boy, I like grudge list. I, I'm a poison pen like you wouldn't believe in. I start, it started. It started. And I didn't worry about the cause or effects. My, I just started writing all the poison down. The next thing I numbered here is where it says to conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. It says when we were finished, we considered it carefully. That's specific. Consider it. And that ain't hard. 
I wanted to consider it. I wanted to enjoy what I'd wrote down. Man, that was what I felt about you and you and you and them. I wanted to look at it. And I did. So as we turn back to the list, concrete, definite, specific things. I got these numbered and underlined. I've got, I got to oversimplify. So as we saw that these resentments must be mastered. Now there's a key here. It says we could not wish them away. And that's precisely exactly what I'd been doing since I joined Alcoholics Anonymous. I was trying to think myself serene. Didn't work for me. Just for me. I got a book in my archives called Think and Grow Rich. I had all them things. I got a collection of them. Think and Grow Rich. I was going to think and grow serene. We turned back to the list. We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but we could not wish them away. That's pretty simple. It's a simple program. I drank myself simple, and thank God it's a simple program. Here's one, and this is a half a sentence. So you can accuse me of taking this out of context. It's just a half a sentence. I got number four. We ask God to help us. Whatever you conceive him to be. I know by the time three years into the program when I finally got around to picking up a pencil, I had a conception of a higher power that I could ask to help me. And that's what it says. We ask God to help us. Number five, referring to our list again. Specific. There, the list. And this is where the wheat begins to fall away from the chaff, I think. It says we resolutely look for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? And to that, in my program, I added the suggestions I found in the 12 and 12, where they suggest possibly looking at what they call the seven cardinal sins. Pride, lust, anger, greed, envy, and sloth. I don't know if that's seven. For you guys who want to be legalistic, maybe it was six, but they're in there. And I use those. The part where I depart from a lot of what I've seen palmed off as tough love in the fellowship is right here in this phrase. It says, when we saw our faults, we listed them. When we saw them. That's a pretty compassionate statement, I think. It's a pretty loving statement. It says, when we saw our faults, we listed them. Now, we've got a, a treatment center in Cody. And part of the treatment down there is a real... I mean, an inventory, like, I mean, it scares me looking at them. Some of those guys write pages. And they're forced to do it. And I've seen them, some of the guys I've come to know down there really agonize over this thing. And I don't know what's going on in there, and I'm not going to talk much about it because I'm talking about something I haven't been through. And one of the lessons I've learned is if you haven't worn it and you ain't walked in it, you better not talk about it. But for me, this when we saw our faults, we listed them as a little bit of that grace of God we always talk about. That relieves me of the responsibility of having to really get into myself or get in touch with my feelings or whatever. just means that when I see things wrong, I can put them down, and I do. Number six, it says we reviewed our fears thoroughly. We put them on paper. And that wasn't hard to do. It took a little time. Uh, once again, I went back to that when I could see him. Things that were bugging me today. There's a key here 
there was some, I, I gained some understanding of fear just by reading this. It says, we asked ourselves why we had them. Wasn't it because self-reliance failed us? I lived my whole life scared to death. Scared to death of everything. I had a macho image. I was a tough guy. I had the exterior. I looked mean and big and tough. But I was scared. And that statement that wasn't it because self-reliance failed us, man, that there's some there's some insight there to my problem, to my problem of alcoholism. That's where something inside me is absolutely sure that there's nothing I can do in a given situation. Whether I'm consciously aware of it, I could deceive myself into believing things that aren't. But something inside me is still sane enough to know that I'm in over my head and self-will is not going to avail me anything. It says we put these down. Then it goes on and it says about sex. Sex is a big deal in our society. It asks us to review our conduct and it's just specific. That's when we've been selfish, dishonest. It asks us to look at them item by item and go back through them. Look at them fair and square. Then it says something that I think puts it in proper perspective. It says we treat sex as we would any other problem. Consistent with the program. Not with what feels good, do it. But other problems consistent with the program if you want to work the program. The result of that was that I was still depressed after the first one. I was still mad. I was still thinking about throwing a rope over a rack. I have never once had a sense of instant relief of anything since I come in the fellowship outside that first glimpse of some real compassion and understanding at my first meeting. Nothing happened. I went through with the fifth step almost immediately. Nothing happened. Nothing perceptible happened. Something big happened, really. And it's easy to gloss over it and not pay any attention to it. I didn't throw the rope over the rafter. I didn't get drunk. And I didn't disappear into the woodwork in rage. To hell with you. And I was tempted to do that. I stuck around. And things got a little bit better. I found some things in working at the steps, just working at them, at my speed. I found out that if I'm willing to give this thing a sincere try, it's almost like I step out of the time stream. I don't really believe there's any hurry in working the steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I'm willing to do the things that are presented to me or consider them or deal with them at whatever le le level I'm capable of dealing with them. I think time was definitely running out for me when I refused to take that inventory. I was out of time when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous drunk and whipped. But by choosing to become willing, and that was a choice, I think I stepped out of time. And people that push and hammer and push, none of whom I know personally, by the way, make me want to vomit. That's not the program that I work, and therefore that's not the program I've got to give away. I've seen a lot of things or heard of a lot of things palmed off as tough love that are nothing but meanness. Meanness with a label. 
I was an AA member because I had myself labeled that way, but I wasn't an AA member until I joined the program and started working at the program a little bit. There was a fella come through town over in Cody where we've resided for the last five years or so. Man, he got my attention. That cat had been in the insane asylum six times after he got sober. Now I thought, now that's my kind of cat. This guy, this guy's got some problems that sobering up didn't take care of. And he made mention of the fact that, that there were six steps in the program designed to deal with guilt. And that the biggest thrill in his life was that having, he felt, made enough progress on him that for the first summer in six years sober, he was in Cody, Wyoming and getting ready to enjoy Yellowstone Park instead of getting locked in a cage somewhere. And I thought, man, now that's progress. And I can understand. I found through those same six steps he was referring to. The most fantastic thing I've ever experienced in my life. There was physical sobriety, but that's not it. I'd been physically sober 150,000 times. And it wasn't just the health, although I do appreciate my health, and I don't have to look very far to, to feel something where my health's concerned. But I, through those six steps, I was able to find forgiveness. Just plain old forgiveness. And through those same six steps, I was able to find a capacity to begin forgiving other people. I had a chance to do that tonight. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. That same restaurant I was telling you about where I put on a little show for them downtown here a few years ago, we didn't get our supper in. I spent a lot of time trying to excuse people for inexcusable behavior. I find that when I ask God to forgive me nine times out of ten, I'm asking Him to accept my excuses. And excuses and accepting excuses have nothing to do with forgiveness. To me, forgiveness is the capacity to look something square in the eye, which I feel that, a, that Alcoholics Anonymous has done in my case, and that I'm obligated to do for others, look it square in the eye and say, that stinks. Yes, your behavior stinks. You were wrong, and this particular instance is, is wrong. But it's okay. I forgive you. We will start over from scratch. No harm, no foul. I spent a long time trying to justify something minor like bad service in a restaurant. Justify it by saying, I'm not supposed to take their inventory. Or maybe it's because they're short-handed and the gal got a phone call. I'm inventing excuses for her so I can excuse her. It has nothing to do with forgiveness. If she has extenuating circumstances, and I'm going to stay with the restaurant case, but there are others, and this is a minor thing, and this one came easy. I'm talking about an easy one. If there are extenuating circumstances, then I don't have to forgive her. There's nothing to forgive her for. All I have to do is give her some justice or fairness. It's the real rotten things that happen. It's the real rotten things I've done and that I do that there are no excuses for. And it's the things that are done to me that are inexcusable and rotten and mean 
that there are no excuses, no extenuating circumstances for. Those are the things that I have to forgive. By accepting my, my alcoholism as a disease, a disease that has the capacity to kill me just as dead sober as it ever did drunk. By working at the steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. By cleaning house. By looking for my motives. By admitting I'm wrong when I'm wrong. Not if I'm wrong or if I can't find an excuse. But for when, when I'm out of line admitting it. I'm finding the capacity to cheerfully grant that which I expect from you, and that's forgiveness. And it's a beautiful thing. There's some liberation in that. I have to make judgments every single day of my life as to what I believe and what I don't believe. I have to take what you say and evaluate it. I have to take your inventory in that sense. But if I'm trying to make excuses for you, then I'm going to have to resent you if you're wrong. But if I'm able to take what you say, run it through the old sifter, and make a judgment, I can forgive you where you're wrong, and I can live. You don't have to attend very many Alcoholics Anonymous meetings to find out there's more than one version of the truth around the table. And it's vitally important for me to know what the truth is. As I mentioned when I began, I'm going to walk out of here under a death sentence. I'm over my resentment about this noose hanging over my neck, but I've got to have respect for the noose that hangs over my head every single day of my life. And I do. I'm gaining respect for it daily. I'm glad there's such a thing as Alcoholics Anonymous for me to come to. I'm glad there's such a thing as Alcoholics Anonymous for me to come to in. I fumble and I stumble. And I rage and I beller and I preach. And I drive people out and I grab them back in. But it's working. And I'm glad that, that I'm glad that's the way it is. I'm glad for people like you that'll show up and let me rant and rave. I have no way of knowing if I've made any sense to anyone. I don't even know if I made sense to myself. But I get a chance to walk out of here knowing that this thing's working for me. I came here in the first place trying to save my ass. That's what I'm doing today. I want to thank you for sitting patiently and attentively. I haven't seen a droop an eyelid, and I'm grateful for that. I, I really am. I, uh, the only other experience I, I have at this, I'm going to let it out of the bag now, is I, I do a little preaching in the church I'm involved in, and I said some unkind things about those folks, but I said it as a participant. Just like I feel I'm justified in helping take AA Group's inventory or AA's inventory because I'm a member. I'm also a member of a religious body now. And I've done a little preaching. Now I see a few nervous glances and I see old Carl grabbing his back pocket. It's been strictly non-professional, consistent with our tradition, so there won't be an offering taken up. That's been good for me, but this is better. And thanks a lot for listening. I appreciate it.